This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Texas Rangers. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Welcome again to the Ballsy Podcast. As took place several weeks ago, significant changes going on here. I'm David Moore. I'm now in charge. I have decided that this week's guest on the Rangers will be Evan Grant from the road. Evan, can you hear me? I, I can hear you, and um, I'll just let you know that, let me explain to you how my day is going, David. <laughs> Please do. Um, it is uh, 8.30 here in uh, Anaheim. Uh, Orange I woke County. Up at, that's correct, Orange County. Uh, I woke up at 6.30. With what I believed was the smell of uh, rotten eggs in my room. Um, and uh, because I'm so deaf, I was afraid that maybe I had not heard uh, the sirens for a uh, gas leak or something. So I quickly peeked out the window to look downstairs and see that my room apparently sits right over where the septic tank and sewage removal area is and i was getting a big waft of that at 6 30 so it was kind of a, a scratch and smell feel to the ranger season well i was hoping that story was going to go in several other directions one of been you have had rotten eggs in your hotel room before so that would have been a possibility two that's true two that you would have told us you jumped up, ran down to the lobby in your night clothes to find that there was no emergency. That would have been the best story. Uh, well, I, I can only report the facts. So there was once a, um, a World Series situation in which many writers, these are back in the days when, when writers from newspapers used to actually travel <laughs> to postseason games. Now, I um, think you're making another sort of statement, but go ahead, yes. This was a long, long time ago, uh, 2005, actually. Um, and uh, we had a situation where the sirens went off in the hotel at 4 o'clock in the morning, and many notable writers uh, all appeared downstairs in what appeared to be their night clothes. I threw on a sweatshirt and some sweats before I ran for my life. And um, the great John Lowe, uh, Hall of Fame writer, appeared downstairs, and I am not kidding you, in uh, what appeared to be satin uh, matching pajamas and a smoking <laughs> jacket. And uh, it, it, was, it was a sight. It also, if anybody knows John Lowe, who is 
a man who was born to live in the 1940s and 50s. Um, <laughs> it was perfect. It was perfect for him because he looked like he was coming downstairs from his 1940s or 50s bedroom with his, I mean, with the robe that he had packed. I mean, it wasn't a hotel robe, let's just put it that way, uh, in his suitcase as well. Um, so that there you go. There's hotel room talk, and uh, it's probably better to talk about that than anything going on with the Rangers because there's been no news with the Rangers. Well, I, I was hoping that someone would actually run down in one of those all one-piece things that they wore in the Old West, and I kind of envisioned that you might have something like that where the, the whole mm – -hmm. The, the cloth, the white cloth button-up that goes down right around your, your knees. Uh, and the one where the flap is buttoned up right around <laughs> the old butt. If there is a flap, um, indeed, yeah. You, you have, you no, have two the, versions uh, of that. You, you just have the free-flowing one, but you also have the one with the flap, which is also a nice look. The uh, No, the, the actual, the cowboy, Tracy Ringlesby, um, did come downstairs um not in, in flannel night clothes with a flap or anything like that. Um, but he did, he did show up wearing a, uh, entire, uh, University of Wyoming, uh, basketball outfit. <laughs> basketball jersey? Uh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, basketball shorts. Um, and it also fit because Tracy is a huge University of Wyoming fan. Far, far more intense on that stuff than um, many of us were. You are with Georgia. Uh, I'm pretty close on that with Georgia. There's there's a lot of Georgia night clothes running around in my house somewhere. <laughs> if I can ever find it again, because my house is in duress. Anyway, I, I can't I can't imagine that listeners aren't fascinated by this, <laughs> but but maybe we should move on. Um, let's talk. Let's talk about that game last night. No, I'm kidding. Let's talk about, you know, we talked about Bannister last week and what we thought would happen. We saw that happen on Friday. Just start with your overall thoughts on the, the timing on this and why it happened when it did. Well, I, I think ultimately, you know, this thing is, uh, when we talked last year, we, we or last week, we talked a little bit about the things involved in communication that had been something of an issue at, at the end of last year. We wrote about that last year. We wrote about it again in spring training. Just things that John Daniels wanted Jeff Bannister to address, and in some regard, things that Jeff Bannister acknowledged. Uh, and, and so that set the stage this year to, to kind of monitor it. And I never heard anything in which... Uh, indicated Bannister had become a huge negative on the team, but I also never heard anything over the course of a season that indicated that uh, within the clubhouse, Jeff Bannister had become a guy who was moving the needle in a real positive direction for this young team. Um, and I think that as this, as this whole season kind of played out, uh, that became evident. And I think it became, I think to a lot of people around the organization, a lot of people um, in the media uh, and, and the players uh, that, you know, nothing was, uh, nothing was, there was nothing bad going on, but there was nothing 
really moving in a positive direction in terms of, of the manager and the relationship with the players. There was nothing to really document, but it just kind of seemed to be not uh, growing, I guess would be the best way to put it. And I think ultimately what John Daniels decided was he was going to let Jeff Bannister know what he was thinking. Um, and I, I think that uh, at that point it just became obvious to John that he had made his decision. This club is talking about 2019. The manager was hoping to do some discussion on 2019, and I think it just became, it, it got to a point where it was just awkward, and Daniel decided the best thing to do was to be honest and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not planning to bring you back, and I think we're going to make a change, and this is going to give Jeff an opportunity to get a week or 10 days ahead of time uh, in terms of network networking for some potential jobs that are open and will open after this season. And it gives the Rangers a good 10 days to kind of do some due diligence in, in what is usually a rushed process in the early part of October in terms of putting together a list of candidates and, and then going through the interview process. So I think ultimately what it came down to in a very long-winded way, David, is, is saying that at the end of it, it just became important for John, to be honest with Jeff and honest about where this club was going, and that, I think, is what led to what a lot of people feel was kind of the awkward timing of the announcement. Well, it, like, it, you can say it's awkward timing, but, yeah, I mean, when you take all those factors together, what were there any signals that this was going to really go into 2019? I mean, did, did anyone have the sense that, uh, they felt good enough about things and, and, and the rapport and everyone being on the same page here that that was going to happen. And, and if the answer is no, uh, it makes perfect sense to, to go right. ahead and, like and, you say, and, and, and do a. And people say, oh, a week to 10 days. Well, that's not a big deal. Well, yeah, it is <laughs> as far it, it as the way these jobs come up. Yeah. It, it is in this process because you've got to, um, as much as managers work more in tandem. Um, with GMs um, these days and kind of operating on their own island, uh, you've got to have your manager in place and you've got to have your philosophy in place really by the end of October uh, so that you can hit free agency and things like minor league free agency and the trade market, uh, hit the ground running there. And if you're still trying to put together a manager or still trying to figure out who he is, uh, you're behind the rest of, of, of baseball. So I think every day at this point in time is, is important. Um, and also it wouldn't have been fair to Jeff Bannister if you say, if you say well, he's our, man, he's our manager, but we're going to go start doing some back-channel communication sure. and some due diligence because then it gets back to him and then you find out, the, man, the manager finds out that he's in trouble, you know, kind of through the grapevine. And and that's not real fair either. There, I, I think the bottom line in you may you've got a lot of experience with this with with on your beat, but I think you can attest to this also. There's no easy or good way to fire somebody in public. It just doesn't happen. And the best thing you can do is once you've made a decision, be honest with 
the person that you're looking to that, that you're going to make a change with be up front and then start to you know move on towards the next goal and, and yeah as we talked about too this is this team is in a position that Jeff Bannister is much better positioned to find a good job right now you would think than he would be Let's even extend this to the end of 2019 with where this team is in its transition and development as far as what his record will be and what his strengths are. And again, uh, look, there, there are times when it makes sense for the, the manager and the team to part. And uh, right. it just seemed that all the signs were there. And to look the other way or deny it for a little bit longer really was – Serve no, serve no one. It really, just serve no would one. Not, no, it would not have. It would not have accelerated anything. And and I think you know the what I have not reiterated is something I think we talked about last week, and that is the strange position the Rangers were were in, which was they didn't extend Jeff Bannister's contract after last year. So. They were facing the idea of going into the the real heart of a rebuilding process, which means at least one or two more losing seasons. Uh, they were faced with the prospect of having Jeff Bannister going into the last year of his contract. And they were faced with the idea that, you know, he wasn't necessarily the guy in the clubhouse that, that the players felt like they wanted or needed. And so... What do you do? Do you extend that guy and recommit to him? Do you let him go into the last year of his contract and probably fire him in May when the team inevitably is about 20 games under 500? Or do you make the decision now? And I think just smart business is if you're going in a different direction, the quicker you can determine that you're going in that direction, act. Yeah, there were only two decision, two good management decisions to be made here. You either extend him or you let him go. Those right. were the only two. Middle ground or any sort of compromise was not best for the organization, and uh, those things usually come by, back to bite everyone uh, as they extend. But uh, real quick, let, so let's talk about uh, looking forward in a, in a managerial search. Um any chance an in-house candidate will get it, or are you convinced that the team will go outside? Uh, I, I would. I, I think as this whole process was playing out, I was much more convinced the Rangers were going to absolutely go outside. I, I do think that they that Don Wakamatsu presents a really intriguing option for them. Um, John Daniels has always liked him. He's got a 15-year career uh, relationship with him. Um, he has the ability now with a little bit of managerial experience to to come into the job knowing a little bit more about how he wants to uh, proceed. Uh, he's had great experiences over the last 10 years and being part of a, a team that went from developed to world cheer, to world champions in, in Kansas City. Um and, you know, the the idea of, of Walk growing with this club could be appealing on a lot of fronts. But I also feel that if I was leaning, I'd still lean, you know, somewhat north of 50% that the Rangers are going to follow the trend in baseball 
and try and, and, and get a candidate here who is young, uh, peer, kind of uh, still a peer of many players, uh, who embraces analytics, and that's not to say that Don doesn't. I think he, I, I think he does. Um, but you look around baseball and you look at what has become the number one job priority of a manager, and it is communication with his team. It has nothing to do with strategy. Strategy is pretty much played out. X's and O's are, are pretty simple now based on the information we have. The matchups are pretty simple. The lineups are pretty much a uh, not not done by feel except for an occasional day off here or there, but more done by by running simulations in, in computers uh, in the front office. It's really shifted and, the focus of what you want in a manager. Yeah, I mean, the manager has two responsibilities. One, be a spokesman for the club on a daily basis uh, with the media, and major league managers meet with the media twice a day, uh, more so than really any, any coach in any sport. Um, and more importantly, make sure that that clubhouse of 25 guys has the least number of issues um, simmering or lingering or bubbling to the top uh, possible. Communicate with them, communicate openly with them, communicate in a language, whether it's baseball, life, English, Spanish, uh, Japanese, Asian, uh, I mean, Japanese or, or Korean, I'm sorry, and communicate to them directly. Don't communicate to them in the way you think that you want them to listen. Communicate to them in the way they want to listen. You cannot impose your culture or your philosophy on them. You've got to adapt your culture and your philosophy to the 25 guys who ultimately are going to determine whether or not you succeed or fail. And what a dramatic adjustment that is from, what, would you say 10 to 15 years ago? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but I think that I, I think that that is. I think that that's part of where sports are going in general. And I look at it now. I forget what I was. I, I know I was watching the Michigan State Arizona State football game a couple of weeks ago, and watching Tom D'Antonio on the sidelines, and I'm like, uh, why are these coaches just always angry? You know, all you ever see is coaches being angry. I don't expect to see guys running around on the field high-fiving, but I don't think that, that, that expressing anger and telling guys to do something because I said so with the modern athlete is necessarily the way to speak. I think you've got – these guys have as much access to analytics and data as you do. They've been coached individually for – God knows how long when they by the time they get to the major leagues, they want to know a why and a how, and I think that's important for the manager to be able to to communicate that, and it's an, it's important for the manager to be able to understand what are the complexities that run through a player's mind on a day to day basis. So, I think we're seeing uh, communication in all sports become much more of a. Uh, of a factor in what determines a successful manager um, or coach. 
and I think that, the, you know, the, the days of the old red-ass coach stomping up and down the sidelines or running out of the dugout and kicking up dirt, I think those are those are gone or, or going. Yeah, that's, that's a nostalgic, iconic view. You, you still have those in college football, but, but you're seeing them less and less, and, and this is a generational thing in my mind. And, and, and look, in, in baseball, as far as cultures represented, baseball is the most diverse of all of the pro sports in the U.S., and it's, it is the sport where the athletes and coaches spend the most time together. And there's really there's not a close second, I, I don't think, but because of the way it's structured and and the time and and the rhythm of the sports. Do you agree with that? I would agree, absolutely. I would agree, and I I think that uh, it, it it makes being a manager of people that much more of a prerequisite. So, what again? It's it's early on this. If you say that the um, the the odds are, are are north of fifty that they look outside of the organization and, and that's where the next manager comes from. Uh, who are some names to keep in mind, if not directly for this job, the the names of some uh, managers who have fit that profile on what you think they will be looking for that that uh, people give people a little bit better uh, idea uh, of what to expect. Well, I think up. I think for Ranger fans, the obvious question is going to be. Well, doesn't Michael Young fit all those? All those? Doesn't he check up all those boxes? And he does, except for what? And, and the one being, you've got to have a real strong desire to do this. And right now, he's got three young kids. He is as grounded and devoted a, a dad as as I've seen. Uh, and he's he's focused on that. He's very much involved with the club. He's very much a part of. I believe John Daniels in her circle, but he's also not going to work um, seven days a week, 365 days a year, whether there's a game or not. He's going to to right, rightfully so, you know, not accept the responsibility um, of being a manager if his heart is not in, if that's not his number one priority. So, um, while I think there's possibility somewhere down the road that as Michael's kids age he might decide to get back in baseball um, on a full-time gig uh, I think right now he's in the right place and and you know you may see him expand his responsibilities slightly but I don't think you're going to see him take on the grueling role of a manager uh, but I, I think you look at, at a guy like him you look at the guys who have been successful in the big leagues this year um, like Alex Cora, um, uh, recently Tori Lovello, who was a finalist for the Rangers job, Kevin Cash, who was a finalist for the Rangers job the last time around, um, Aaron Boone, who's in his first year, Gabe Kapler, who's had a good first year with, with Philadelphia. These are all guys who had legitimate big league careers who were in their, in their early 40s or in some cases started managing in their late 30s. And, and I think that's that's the group you look at, the guys that have kind of this universal respect around the game uh, and still want to do it. You know, I I look at a group of the, the, the names that I threw out there who would who would certainly be intriguing, and I don't know if they could be lured into doing it because also 
they made a lot of money. They have other priorities uh, at this point in time, or at least the uh, the the uh, the view that there are there are other priorities. But a guy like Mike Lowell, who is bilingual, who grew up in Puerto Rico and grew up in the states, uh, mainland, um, well versed in analytics, well versed in spoken being a spokesperson having worked for the MLB network. Uh, I think this is a guy who fits a whole lot of boxes. He was also a guy who was universally respected in, in the game. And, you know, he, in some regards had also the inspiring story that Jeff Bannister did, which is, you know, he, he overcame cancer at, a, at an early age. Um, I look at former Ranger Mark DeRosa, who's also on the MLB network and has become a real, a little bit more of a character, I think, than, than, than Lowell did. But, uh, he's got a relationship with John Daniels, and I think that's important. Uh, he's got a relationship with Michael Young, and I think you know is, that familiarity is always going to play a role for for somebody. Um, uh, a guy who's intriguing to me, probably not yet ready to be a manager because I think this is only his first or second year on a major league staff, but. If you're looking at Alex Cora, you know, the, the way this works, David, is you end up looking at copycats. Like, in a lot of ways, I think the Rangers hired Jeff Bannister hoping to get Clint Hurdle because Clint had been here. He had left an indelible mark on the franchise in his one year as a communicator, uh, and the Pirates had just gone to the, to the playoffs for, for the second straight years. He had, he had turned things around in Pittsburgh. So, um, I look at a staff like Boston, which has put together a great, great year, and, and there's nothing but but um, really great things to say about Alex Cora. And on his staff is uh, Ramon Vasquez, who played for the Rangers for two seasons. Again, bilingual, grew up in Puerto Rico. Um, I think Ramon played college ball uh, on the mainland here, which gave him an early exposure to um, understanding how the dynamics work between players coming from a Latin culture uh, to to an Anglo culture, um, he's he's very much in charge of like communicating data uh, from the front office to players. So he speaks the language that players um, understand. The guy is uh, the guy is has managed in Puerto Rico during the winter league. Um, so I, I, I look there. Uh, I, I also look at the Dodgers organization because I think they are at the forefront of melding analytics with, with getting players to buy in. And there's a treasure trove of talent there. Um, Raul Abanez is in their front office. Um, much, he's, he's not running the farm system the way Kapler was when he went to Philadelphia, but Abanez is there. Another bilingual. Um, candidate who uh, also had a great big league career is pretty much universally respected by everybody. Uh, I look at their AAA manager, Bill Hasselman, a former Ranger who managed for a year in the Rangers organization under John Daniels. Um, And the only reason he left is because at that point in time he wanted to be more West Coast centered and the Rangers minor league team in Bakersfield had relocated to the East Coast. He's now their AAA manager at Oklahoma City. Has done a really good job there. He's been exposed to to the way uh, the Dodgers do things. 
And so I'm, I'm looking whether it's in an honest attempt to hire a manager or B, just exploit the interview process to get as much information from candidates about these organizations who seem to be at the forefront right now as possible, I'm exploring these types of guys. And we'll have many more ballsy opportunities to explore just what the uh, Rangers will do with their upcoming managerial search. Evan, we thank you so much. Before you return to the sewage plant, very quickly, how many more times will Joey Gallo strike out before the season is done? Well, I believe... You know, he's now one home run and one strikeout away from a 40-homer, 200-strikeout season. I think he would become the sixth player in baseball history to accomplish that. Um, you got to go for history here. Uh, yeah, we're talking history. you got to go for uh, it. He's not going to set the all-time record for strikeouts, which I think is 223. But he has a chance here over these last six games, if he plays pretty much every day, to get to about 210, which I think puts him on the cusp of the top five all time. Um, and that's kind of what the season is up to. <laughs> well, Evan, thanks so much. We will look forward to you chronicling the home run and strikeout uh, pursuit here of Joey Gallo in these final six games of the regular season. And we'll talk to you again soon. David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Rangers Ballsy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly episodes on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, too. Just search the Ballsy with a Z podcast. Until next time, sports fans, we'll see you.